Welcome to Apparently Speaking, the podcast from Northeast Ohio Parent Magazine, with your host, Miriam Connor. Hi, this is Miriam. Welcome to the latest episode of Apparently Speaking, where I'll be talking about parenting and perfectionism with Dr. Jeffrey Reber. This episode is sponsored by Montrose Mazda Kent. They go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at mazdakent.com. And also by Old Trail School. In addition to a challenging academic experience, students age two to grade eight learn to embody the school's core values of respect, responsibility, goodness, and service as they mature into thoughtful, independent leaders. Jeffrey S. Reber, PhD, LPC, is the chair of the Department of Psychology at the University of West Georgia, a licensed professional counselor, and the founder of Relational Counseling and Consulting Services. Dr. Reber has produced more than three dozen scholarly publications informed by this relational psychological perspective, and he has given dozens of presentations on relational psychology. Dr. Reber's books specialize in treating growing societal issues and concerns like narcissism and perfectionism from a relational perspective that interfaces faith and psychology. Welcome, Dr. Reber. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure. I think that, you know, we're talking about parenting and perfectionism. I think it's definitely worthy of discussion for sure. I think today more than ever, probably there's pressure, and you would know this way more than I do, on today's parents, you know, to do everything and be everything. Absolutely. The pressure is intense, and I think everything's accelerating. So kids are expected to do more than ever and do it faster and achieve goals more effectively and efficiently than ever before. Right. And so, you know, there's kind of two things that I think about when I'm talking about perfectionism parenting, the, the pressure that parents put on themselves, maybe even more so moms, you tell me if I'm wrong. Um, and, and then, then the pressure that they put on their kids to be perfect. So it's kind of like two, twofold. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I could honestly say this book was written primarily for mothers because in my experience uh, as a counselor, even with my own mom, my wife, um, mothers are under such extreme pressure. Much of it is caused by their own expectations they put on themselves, but a lot of it is also by the media, uh, by their social circles. But they're under such extreme pressure to raise children that really fit an ideal, Um that ideal may be intelligence, that ideal may be sports ability, that ideal might be music talent. Um, it could be all of it, you know, but kids are really expected to achieve high, high ideals. And mothers are sort of looked at or at least feel like they're the ones responsible for getting their kids there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think, um, you know, so so the kids have this pressure because the, the mom, let's just say the mom, for example, you know, wants to have the, like you said, the perfect kid or the perfect athlete or scholar or musician or whatever it may be. So they feel this pressure based, you know, they're allowing themselves, I guess I would say, is to feel that pressure. So then they're putting it on on their kid, which it's not healthy for either, you know, for the parent or the kid, obviously. And do you think, I would think social media, not that it didn't happen before, certainly it did, but it seems like social media would probably make the situation worse. Oh, I, I have to say it's a very dangerous thing. Um, it, historically, we would be able to conceive of an ideal, whether that's a, a child or you know a perfect meal we make. Yeah. We could conceive of the ideal in our minds. Um, now we have the ideal presented to us every time we pick up our phone. And if you get on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, Twitter, any of these 
um, social media outlets, you are exposed immediately to people who have put the pictures up of their themselves, their family, their children that are really presenting an ideal, um, even with now Photoshopping and other kinds of enhancements mm-hmm. that make the ideal even look more ideal than it really is. Um, I just I think people are in a, st- a constant state of comparison now with the ideal that they think other people are somehow actualizing because they see it on the phone every day. It's funny because, right, and I see it and I post things. And of course, everybody just posts like the highlights, right? It's like the highlight reel or the, you know, you're not posting. You know, I didn't post a picture, you know, when I just wake up and I have, you know, no makeup on and I have glasses on and my kitchen is a mess and all that. You know what I mean? That That's not usually what people post. Maybe I should. No. But, um, and so, but people, I guess I'm thinking like, you know that. Like, you know that, though, but I guess maybe for some people, you know what I mean? They just, I don't know. Do they know it? Why don't they know it? You know, <laughs> like, you know that people are posting just the highlight reel. So to let that affect you so much and, and compare to something that is just the highlight reel. Well, I think this is a place where our, our mind and our heart are not always well connected. Our minds, we look at these pictures. We know that people are selecting their best moments, their best events. Uh, their best look, and and our mind tells us, hey, don't let this get to you. You know they don't have perfect days too. Um, you you know they don't wake up in the morning looking like they did in that picture. But our hearts and our self esteem and our our feelings, our emotions about ourselves and our children, our families, they tend to not notice that mental point. They tend to forget more easily than our minds um, that these people are, make mistakes and are imperfect too. So we kind of we kind of know it, but we kind of don't. Right. And, and the you know the research on this is really clear. I mean, we you can see pretty immediately that the moment a person picks up their phone and starts scrolling through Instagram, and seeing all these presentations of the ideal, their self esteem starts to go down pretty quickly. It's just it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's sad, but it's it's also you know fascinating, and that's why it is dangerous for you know we think of you know adolescents and teens and all that but then you know it can be for some adults as well obviously if it if it affects them that way and it's interesting though that you know you keep looking it's kind of like you just you can't stop looking yeah. even if you know you know I'm going to feel badly about myself but you know I'm going to look again <laughs> every day you know yes well and if you think about how many people's faces you're looking at on your phone or through your computer compared to how many people you're actually looking at in person, that that ratio has changed over time. So now we're looking at more digital images than real-life images than ever before. So our exposure to people's real-life look, you know, how, they're, how they really appear in their everyday mm. when they can't control and Photoshop it, that's decreasing. So we're actually getting a different picture of the world through social media that is outweighing the picture of the world we should be getting from everyday interactions with people around us where things are not quite so ideal as they're presented on, on social media. That's so interesting. Yeah, you see someone in, in person, then you're like, yeeks. You know, <laughs> like, it's funny because yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have um, exactly. my daughter, my oldest daughter is 16, and she just the other day, she showed me a picture. It was her of herself with like, I don't know, three or four other girls at a, at a football game. Cute picture. Very cute. Didn't need anything really cute. And then she goes, Mom, look at this. Look at what one of the girls did to it. 
And I just, we just mm. start laughing. They all had tans and like super, their teeth were like too white. You know what I mean? And just flawless yeah. tan. Like she went through and like it was so edited. Um, first I was like, what's that app she's using? Because I need it. But I'm like, wow. It just, <laughs> you know, it, it really was, we laughed about it. But it kind of made me sad too. I was like, the one before actually looked better to me because you looked normal. And why did this person feel that she had to, to do all of this to the photo, you know, to make it, to make themselves look good or make her look good or whatever it was. Yeah. This is one of the, um, I think really sad pieces of, of research that, that I know pretty well, um, which is when we think about when people are asked about their ideal, um, version of themselves, how they would be most beautiful or attractive, they tend to pick an ideal that most other people around them would not agree with. They go to an extreme, especially people who suffer from body dysmorphic disorder, which is a whole other issue, but but even the everyday person will tend to pick an image of themselves as beautiful and attractive that their own partner would not agree with, um, or, or other people who would just see them on the street, like strangers wouldn't agree with. So we have we have internalized a, an image sensitivity where we think we have to look like the ideal, and if we can't naturally do that, then we got to Photoshop it. I was just um, I was doing some research around uh, Tinder, the effects of Tinder, and I uh, came across you know there's a, a set of of guidelines for how to improve your Tinder uh, profile image, and even including like thickening the little ring around your iris of your eye. It's like a dark kind of almost black ring around the iris what? of your eye. If you thicken, if you thicken that in your image, then people will find your eyes more alluring. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would yeah. never. That would not be what I would be worried about. That's first of all. But um, that's crazy. And then, but then again, it goes back to like, well, then when you, if you ever see the person in real life, what well, they're going to be like, you know, your iris is actually much smaller. So, um, it's just yeah. really interesting. Right. Yeah. And and you know, talking about that with social media, there, you know. I feel like I'm very fortunate because I have a lot of moms that I'm surrounded by that are, I feel very encouraging and we kind of try to encourage each other and support each other. But I know that there is a big competition with some moms. They, and maybe, you know, some moms, maybe, maybe that's how they're making it appear. But, you know, so I think that's hard on some moms too. We're talking about the moms with social media and all that kind of stuff. Um, because there is that competition, you know, well, my kid is two and he's already in Mensa and, you know, he's already been drafted by the NFL and all these kind of things, you know, obviously I'm exaggerating, but you know, there's that competition. And I've had even several conversations with moms who are great moms and they, you know, talking about, you know, sports for example, it's like, well, I just feel like if they don't start, you know, early enough, they're going to be behind. And I'm like, behind what? You know, it's just kind of, but with this got yeah. this, you know, competition or, well, they have to get, you know, they have to take, you know, all of these classes, you know, these all AP classes or whatever, because so-and-so is doing it. And so I don't want my kid to fall behind. Yeah. The fear of falling behind is probably as strong as the desire to achieve the ideal. I think they're both coupled together in a pretty disastrous way. And when you talk about competing, I think it's now moved that the timeline of competing now includes pre-birth. So the, the technologies around genetic editing, trying to get your child to have the best possible genetic makeup possible, 
that used to be science fiction. In the movie Gattaca, we reference it in the book, where you would go in and your your geneticist would help you identify the best child you could create um, and manipulate that with genetic editing. That's actually now become a reality. So parents can compete pre-birth, preconception, <laughs> trying to identify, you know, and pay for uh, material and genetic editing that will help their children have the best head start possible once they come into this world. Of course, we have no idea how the genetic editing will alter all sorts of things in the person. Um, but that sense of competition, it has definitely moved earlier and earlier in the developmental scheme. And I, I get it. Even when we had our first um, child, our daughter, and we were, I think, you know, going into church or school or something, some event where there were other mothers with their young children, some about the same age as our daughter, the, the statements that were made, and this is without social media, you know, this is back in the early 90s, but the statements that were made were just really hard to hear. You know, we had a daughter who was pretty colicky, would cry about three hours every night, and we were exhausted and worn out, and it showed. And there'd be mothers there who would say, you know, my, my daughter started speaking at six months. Is that normal? And of course they weren't saying it because they wanted to know if it was normal. They were saying it to brag about their daughter being right. so intelligent. And it wasn't true anyways, but right. <laughs> and it wasn't true anyways, of course, you know, but it's just this need to prove right. that one is achieving some kind of ideal and doing it faster and more effectively than others. And I don't want to just blame social media. or it's It's a cultural language of perfectionism now that has become almost like our nature, like our, our spoken language. It's all we know. It's crazy. It's sad. I mean, because, I mean, to live that way, and everybody probably feels it a little bit sometimes, you know what I mean? But to to really live yeah. like that with trying to be perfect and trying to be, um, you know, not left out and, uh, you know, to keep up and all these things we mentioned, I mean, that would be very exhausting and stressful but it would also, I would think, be very exhausting and stressful to your kids. It absolutely is. And and I work in a business in, in doing therapy where I see parents and their kids when it finally hits them, the reality that they can't keep up. They can't achieve the ideal. It's always over, you know, out of their reach. Um, they're letting themselves down. They're letting their mom and dad down. They're letting their friends down. And then they have almost a breakdown. And they end up in my office or another therapist's office, and they're suffering from massive anxiety. They're feeling depressed and hopeless. They think that they're not going to be able to be of worth or value in the world because they're not living up to the same speed and standard that their friends or, or you know neighbors are. Um, so it really does. It, I mean, it's directly related to psychological issues and even disorders. We're going to take a quick break. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, there's so much to say. And then some of it is just like just shocking even just to hear. You know, it's like um, but we're going to take a quick break here from our sponsor. When we come back, I'm going to ask you to maybe talk about some signs that you might be a perfectionist parent. Maybe you don't realize it or you don't think you are, um, but maybe some signs that you might think, oh, yeah, I do that and I do that. So maybe I need to, you know, look into this. So we'll be right back and we'll talk about that. 
Old Trail School is a co-educational independent day school serving children aged 2 to grade 8. Located in the heart of Cuyahoga Valley National Park, its 62-acre campus provides the perfect setting for purposeful, intentional curriculum and a meaningful student experience that gets children outside and brings the park in, all while focusing on the school's core values of respect, responsibility, goodness, and service. For 100 years, Old Trail School has inspired the best and brightest young people in the region and is committed to fostering a distinctive culture where each child feels known and cared for. Call 330-666-1118 to schedule a personalized tour or learn more at oldtrail.org. Okay, we're back talking with Dr. Reber. And again, thank you so much for being here. We're talking about perfectionism parenting. So what are some signs that, you know, and it's probably the old thing where, you know, the person who is really is doing this, they don't see it, you know, in themselves. It's harder for us to see things in ourselves, obviously. But what are some signs, maybe if you take a really good look, you know, um, at yourself, but what are some signs that you might be a perfectionist parent? Yeah, I think you're right to point out that people don't see these immediately. And part of that's because perfectionism is the water we swim in, so we're not accustomed to it. We don't recognize it. Um, But there are a few things you can look at. Um, One I I would suggest is... If you have a kind of intolerance or discomfort for error, for mistakes, for setbacks. So I, for example, um, tell my children, I, you know, I don't want you to be perfectionistic. And I try to teach them uh, to, to accept failure, to accept mistakes. But then when they actually make a mistake, I find myself often thinking and saying to them, hey, you know better. Why did you do that? We've taught you. You understand you shouldn't do that. I can't believe you did that. And what I'm saying to them is a, a double message. You know, there's the one message of, hey, you don't have to be perfect in this life. It's okay. You know, we all say nobody's perfect all the time. But then there's this other message that's kind of like, yeah, I told you you don't have to be perfect, but this was really dumb. And that was really something you knew better than. So you really shouldn't have done that. And you shouldn't have made that mistake. It's kind of like I'm saying there's only a select group of mistakes that I'm okay with. And probably I don't even know what those are because I keep saying every mistake is a problem. So when you tell your children, you know, that's not acceptable, that's not okay, that's not appropriate, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done this, you should have known better. In those moments, you're revealing an intolerance for error, which is a big component of a perfectionistic parent. Really interesting point. Right. So obviously our job is one of our jobs as parents is to to correct them and teach and train them. But like you said, when you're pointing out, you know, when they've made mistakes and you're kind of that's you're not really tolerant of that, then right. The message is you weren't perfect. Yeah. You know, and another another sign for this is a lot of parents teach their children, you know, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this wrong. Don't make this mistake. Don't don't drink, don't smoke, don't whatever it might be. Um, but we don't teach them when you do this thing that I've said not to do. Uh, what does it mean? And, and how do I help you understand it's not the end of the world? How can I show you that it's normal to make a mistake or even to do something I told you not to do? And that that's okay. That can be learned from. You can grow from that. And maybe you and I can even kind of get closer because there's a vulnerability you're showing in coming to me and saying you're sorry that wouldn't be there if I kept telling you just don't do, don't do, don't do, and you kept hiding from me your mistakes. And a lot of kids will do this. So one thing parents can look for is do your kids hide their mistakes from you? Mm -hmm. Are they not letting you see their report card from school? 
Are they not letting you know about um, maybe a teacher who's been critical of them? They don't want you to go to parent-teacher conference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are they keeping things from you because they they know you don't tolerate mistakes, and you haven't taught them that if they make a mistake, it could truly be okay, and it could be a chance for growth. It could be a chance for repair, reconciliation. That's a great point, right? They don't want they want to be perfect in your eyes, kind of, you know that that thing, or they they think that's what you expect. Yeah. So yeah, they would that would be normal that they would they would hide that from you. And so right, are your kids being open with you, or are they trying to hide everything? I'll I'll joke with my kids sometimes if it's if it's not a big deal, you know, depending on obviously what the circumstances. But sometimes my kids yeah. will be you know getting you know hard on themselves where I'm not I wasn't a big deal at all, you know. So like oh this or I did yeah. this or that, you know. So I'll joke and say like, well, it's a good thing. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad I would never do something like that. You know, and just make it light. And then they <laughs> laugh and then we can laugh about it. And it's kind of, they realize that it's not a big deal. Boy, that anything parents can do to let kids know it's truly not a big deal, I think is really helpful. And, and this is an area where I think another, another sign, um, maybe not of perfectionism as a parent, maybe as a recovering perfectionist as a parent, would be that when you make mistakes towards your children, when you make an error in how you're raising them, boy, they see it, by the way, and they can also see the hypocrisy of you not admitting it. But if you make a mistake in raising your children and you go to your child and you say, I did wrong by you, I did something I shouldn't have done, and I am so sorry for that. When you apologize to your child, that models something that they will never forget, and hopefully they will practice in all their relationships. And they say, oh, my gosh, I don't not only do I not have to be perfect, but my mom's or my dad's not perfect. And they even acknowledged it and they even apologized for it. And and I feel better like about my relationship with them now, not worse, because they're just like me. Yeah, that can be a very powerful thing to I've always thought, you know, to apologize to your kids. And if you're worried about being perfect, that may be extra hard for you to do. Right. Because that person would have to obviously admit that they aren't perfect. Um, they would maybe they don't want their kids to see that imperfection in them, even though that's a powerful thing for their kids, you know, for their kids to see, like you said. Yeah, I think I think parents are are if another sign of perfectionist is if you can't let your kids see your flaws. Mm-hmm. If you can't let your kids see your flaws, then you're very likely a perfectionist. And you are telling them the same message, which is you shouldn't show anyone your flaws either. And what that does is it actually creates distance between a parent and a child rather than closeness. It doesn't allow for the intimacy that comes with recognizing we're both suffering from errors and mistakes, and we still love each other. We come to each other and apologize for it. We can forgive each other. I mean, all of those things bond parent and child. And we know from research study after research study that closeness and intimacy between a parent and a child are critical to their development, to their sense of self, to their own parenting when they become a parent, their ability to have lasting, meaningful relationships with other people. It just can't be, you can't substitute for the value of closeness and intimacy with your own kids. I love that. I love that you said that. Yeah, just having that closeness and that trust and that, you know, I feel like that constant communication and modeling, all those things are so important that they will come to you and they will realize it's okay to make a mistake. This isn't that big of a deal. And mom or dad, they're going to, they're going to help me with this. And I I don't need to be ashamed or afraid or embarrassed or whatever the word, the word might be. What about some things that you, you know, you're, 
signs that you might be expecting your child to be perfect. Like some things I found like difficulty, you know, watching your child do something if it isn't your way. You know, you kind of have to step in and micromanage. Like, no, you're not doing it right or do it my way, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think um, there's that, which is parents kind of, yeah, trying to, they call them snowplow parents, you know, mm-hmm, to kind of pile right. everything out of the way for their child. Um, but I think what I, I notice almost more often now is parents have begun with a presumption of their child's perfection and other people who don't see it need to be trained and taught how to relate to their child differently so they can not compromise their child's perfect being. (laughs) So parents, some parents have already idealized their children to a point where anytime the child would have made a mistake, like we would see it as a mistake, the parent blames everybody else. Oh, right. It's the friend's fault, the teacher. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, the teacher did it, the friend did it. My child would never have made never. that choice if you hadn't said this or that, et cetera. So it's like we're actually not willing to look at our own child's flaws. And I'll tell you why. Part of the reason for that is that our child shares our genetic makeup and we raise them. So if we admit our child has a flaw, we kind of are reflecting that we may have made a mistake as parents in parenting that child. So rather than mm. face that, which is a ding on our own perfectionism, it's so much easier to blame other people because then it's not the child's fault. It's not your fault. It's their fault. Right. You and, you and your child can remain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. That's right. And everyone else is the problem. And so you could, and it's, boy, it's a lot, I hate to say it, but it's easier to attack other people than yourself or your child. So some parents will get pretty verbal and sometimes mm-hmm. even physically aggressive in trying to um, keep the imperfecting influences of other people away from their child. Yeah. Wow. And obviously things like criticizing more than praise. You know, if you find yourself, uh, you know, I would imagine this would be another sign, you know, you're just you're criticizing them more than praising them. Your your self-worth hinges on their achievement kind of thing. Um, So you're expecting them to be perfect so you can feel good about yourself. Yeah. Freud talked about this as um, identification. When we identify with our children too much, we see them as little versions of us that maybe we're hoping we'll be better than we were when we were their age, make up for things we didn't do, mistakes we've made. When we overinvest in that identification, we will force our children to do all sorts of things they would never choose or want to so we can feel better better about ourselves. Um, that's really selfish. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not going to help the child develop their own sense of self. They'll always be looking to mom and dad for a sense of, am I a good person? Am I doing the right thing? They won't ever get fully independent or properly independent um, of their parent. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, you know, some of the negative effects that you've seen on children. And and maybe if a parent is listening and they're like, yeah, I kind of do a lot of those things. What are ways that they can maybe stop, you know, kind of wean themselves off of trying to be that everything's perfect. So we'll be right back. Hey, this is Miriam from Apparently Speaking. Join the Mazda family like I did at Montrose Mazda Kent. You'll love the selection of new and used cars and lease options. We are on our third car from Kent Mazda. We keep going back because of the ease of purchase, and it has been by far the best deal we could find each time. Montrose Mazda Kent, they go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at MazdaKent.com. And we are back. Thank you so much again, Dr. Reber. I feel like this is just really, it's actually a fascinating topic. And I hope that some listeners find it helpful. And um, it's not meant to, you know, like 
kind of chastise anyone, you know, but, but just to help, you know, hey, this this happens. And probably, like you said, now more than yeah. ever with because of social media and things like that, it's a real thing. So what are some signs we talked about? You shared signs that, you know, you might be doing this to yourself and your kids. And it, it's 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 harmful for the, the parent and the kids. So what are some effects, some negative effects that, you know, even short term, long term that this would have on children? I think um, in the short term, you're going to see children who lack a lot of confidence. Um, they're scared to take risks because risks involve the inherent possibility of failure. So they're going to be risk averse and um, they'll probably be nervous about their social interactions and prefer to interact through a medium like Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat because then they can design themselves for their audience, whereas in real life, they don't have that luxury. So children who, who really kind of move into uh, their phone and interacting with people in social media through their phone rather than interacting directly with people, they're probably too scared about the risks that come with real-life interaction and the possibility of mistakes. So they'll look to that, that kind of virtual relationship, which is a little more secure and controllable. Um, Long term, I mentioned, you know, I, I see anxiety has become the leading mental disorder in the United States of America. It's surpassed depression. Um, people are just nervous and worried and feel dread about themselves, their well-being. And children can pick this up and show this quite young. Um, I've worked with kids, preteen kids, who are very, very anxious and worried about themselves and their place in the world. Um, Usually depression accompanies that. And you know as well as I do about uh, the, the great concern with uh, teenagers and suicide, even preteens and suicide. Um, this is something that we have to get a hold of. And if we can't show our children and teach our children a different language than the language of flawlessness, the language of pre self-presentation as an ideal, the language of perfectionism, I, I'm not I'm not hopeful that they will know how they will have the tools or the resources to know how to combat the anxiety, the depression, and hopefully not the suicide that can sometimes start to become a, a thought and then lead to an action for some of these precious kids. So how can someone kind of stop, you know, being this way or, or feeling this way, you know, even if it's it's hard because I would imagine, you know, uh, it's not like other people are going to stop. So they if they're comparing themselves and all this kind of thing, that's still going to happen. So what can a parent do to say, you know what? Yeah, I feel like I, I am expecting perfection from myself and from my kids and I need to back off a little bit. What are some things that, that would help be helpful to them? Yeah, I, I want to say that the reason um, for writing this book for mm -hmm. me, it was really to give people hope and help. So we've been a little... Um, dark about yeah. <laughs> some of the challenges of perfectionism, but there really is hope. And I think that the first step that I would encourage people to start working on is to learn that there are different languages of perfection. It's not just flawlessness. Um, in fact, the language of perfection is flawlessness was developed by Greek philosophers, Plato among them, who really were talking about non-human examples of flawlessness. They never expected people to be able to achieve flawlessness. We can achieve excellence. We can be really good at something, um, but we can't ever become the ideal. We will make mistakes and we will fall short. So there are different languages 
of perfection. Excellence is one. Try to be excellent, but don't try to be flawless. Take the Mm -hmm. pressure off of yourself of trying to never do anything wrong. Um, And by the way, trying not to do things wrong is a much less effective motivation than trying to do things you love, you care about, you value, you think are interesting, exciting, creative. Uh, That always works as a better motivation than trying not to do any, you know, make any mistakes or do anything wrong. Um, Another language of perfection that I think I would really want everyone to to know about is um, to really realize you can, you can love perfectly. Now, not love flawlessly, but you can love your children, like, regardless of what they do. Um, Carl Rogers, famous humanistic psychologist, talked a lot about unconditional positive regard. And, you know, regardless of the errors and mistakes and imperfections that your children make, gosh, you can sure love them. You can wrap your arms around them and you can tell them how amazing they are, how great they are, not imagining them perfect, you know, and trying to clear everybody out of the way to prove it, like that snow plowing example. But but a true love, like a, a, a love that maybe is even a little bigger love than you could conjure on your own, a kind of transcendent love. And we've had those. I mean, I remember when my children were born, um, just feeling this kind of overwhelming love that I didn't really feel like came just from me. There was a kind of transcendent quality to it. Um, that to me is a kind of perfection, a language of perfect love. And, um, and I think that would really help a lot. Yeah, I love that. Just that unconditional love. You don't have to be perfect. It's not based on what you do. And I think that, you know, most parents, even if they are kind of caught up in this, they love their kids. You know, we're not saying that. It's just um, they kind of are, you know, maybe caught up in this and it may be coming out in the wrong way, you know, maybe sending the wrong message that they wouldn't want to send to their kids. And I do love that we, you know, are kind of ending on a positive message of hope because like you said, nothing, you know, you can always reverse and, and, and kind of take a step back and, and start over. And because you do love your kids unconditionally and they love their parents unconditionally. So you do have that ability to like, you you know, apologize, maybe talk about it. Hey, you know, I've been putting a lot of pressure on you, um, with this and that, but we're going to try to take a step back and uh, refocus and, and things like that. So there's always that, that hope, like you said. So I, I love that you you mentioned that, and that's a great a great place to end. Although I could talk to you for much much longer, <laughs> you're super interesting and knowledgeable. Can you talk about your book a little bit and explain that a little bit and share how people can find that book? Yeah, the paradox of perfection is the name of the book. It just came out in June. Um, its focus is uh, really helping people to embrace imperfection. Um, as a way of becoming perfect. And I know that sounds paradoxical, um, but the way in which embracing imperfection perfects us has to do with the love I mentioned. When we acknowledge our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, our imperfections with the people we love, we open up the possibility of an intimacy that can be shared. We open ourselves up in a vulnerability that can be appreciated now and valued um, with the people around us. And that can bring us into a kind of communal perfection, which is another language um, that we talked about in the book. Uh, The book is published by Crosslink Publishing. You can get it on Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, any of those uh, online book retailers. Um, You can certainly go to our website, the uh, paradoxofperfectionbook.com, and find out more information there as well. All right. Please, yeah, please check out that book. Um, And thank you so much, Dr. Weber, for joining me today. 
I really have enjoyed it. Thank you me for having too. me Me too. Thank you so much. This episode has been sponsored by Montrose Mazda Kent. They go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at mazdakent.com. And also by Old Trail School. In addition to a challenging academic experience, students aged 2 to grade 8 learn to embody the school's core values of respect, responsibility, goodness, and service as they mature into thoughtful, independent leaders. Thank you for listening to Apparently Speaking. Listen and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and iHeartRadio. Find the podcast and much more at northeastohioparent.com. Like Apparently Speaking on Facebook and email me at podcast at northeastohioparent.com.